On today's episode of I Believe Now What, we are going to go over a common question that many Christians ask, and that is how should we as believers today act when it comes to the law? And I'm not talking about the government law, human law, but rather the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, what we read in the Bible. We're going to go ahead and answer that question as we dig deep today in Romans chapter 7, starting at verses 1 through 13, where the Apostle Paul is writing to believers on this very subject. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hello, and welcome back to another episode. And as you, if you've been following along the past uh, couple episodes, you realize that we are back after a long break, and we are going to be picking back up in our study through the book of Romans and starting our journey into chapter 7. We last fully covered chapter 6, so that's why we're moving on to chapter 7, and that was a long, long time ago. So if you remember, great. If you are new, welcome. And just to keep everything in context, chapter 7 is really a deep dive into what the Apostle Paul was addressing in Romans chapter 6. So it's always good to refresh ourselves there. And and we're going to go ahead and do a brief overview as we get into the episode, but where in chapter 6, this is where he talked about how believers are dead to sin and alive to God. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 are actually really chapters that are just one continuous thought, and each one deep dives and explains the other one more and more and more. It's almost like building blocks, and the overall theme of these chapters are usually grouped up in what we call sanctification. Now, if you don't know what that means, in simple terms, sanctification is the process of man, us, the believer, being more and more conformed and changed into the image of Christ. And it's an ongoing process that is going to continue until we are one day with the Lord and finally made perfect spirit and body. The dictionary would define sanctification as the, quote, action of making something holy, end quote. And the Greek word here, and pardon my, uh, you know, horrible pronunciation, but it's hagaizo. And I probably said it wrong, but, you know, that that's how it is. H-A-G-I-A-Z-O. That's how we transliterate it. And it means to set apart for God and to make a person or a thing uh, the opposite of common. And I wanted to explain that just so you can have that in the back of your mind as we are going over this. Because like I said, Romans 6, 7, and 8 really, really have that overarching theme of sanctification. Now, as for our passages today of Romans 7, verses 1 through 13, if you had to name one overarching theme just for that section of verses, it would be the law. You know, in these verses, the law is mentioned around eight times, you know, kind of depending on the translation that you're using. Uh, I'm personally reading out of the NASB for today, but please read along with with whatever translation you are most comfortable with. Uh, And this is some debating as to what Paul is referring to when we see the word law. When I say there's some debating, it's, you know, amongst the scholarly community uh, and even maybe in your local church. What is Paul referring to when he uses the word law here? Some will say he's referring to law in general, such as laws from the government or uh, something set from, you know, natural law. Others will say he's referring to 
the law, the capital L law, as in the law of God, most commonly what we see in the Ten Commandments. And some will add that this may include, you know, Jewish ceremonial laws, dietary laws, judiciary laws, judiciary, judiciary laws, you know, what we see in the Torah and in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and others will say uh, it's simply just the Ten Commandments. Then there's another group that will say that this is just a, you know, it's a big mix of everything, and they're in different sections. It's talking about different types of laws. So that's one area where people can kind of get tripped up and get confused when they mention the law. Now, one thing that the NASB, the New American Standard Bible Translation, does in its use, uh, the translator's best judgment, they will look at that word law and capitalize the letter L in law if they think it's referring to the Mosaic law found in the Old Testament. So that's one way that they kind of delineate which type of law are we talking about. Now, once again, this is up to the translator's best, I don't want to say guesstimate because it's not really a guess, but they're, they're, you know, they're studied educational uh, guess, I guess you will say, uh, and, and that's how they figure out, okay, are we going to, is, is Paul here referring to the Old Testament law? If so, let's capitalize the L. If it's not referring to that, let's go ahead and lowercase the L. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I do appreciate the NASB, and and it, it kind of gives you a little bit more perspective. Obviously, once again, caveat that it is the translator's uh, you know, notes that they're they're using to determine this because when this letter was originally written, it was written in Greek. And in Greek, you know, you cannot differentiate uh, capitals and there were no commas and periods and things of that nature. Now, back to the debating on whether or not Paul here is referring to the law, capital L, and if you might hear me say that as this goes on throughout the episode, or lowercase law, you even see this in study Bibles. For instance, the ESV study Bible, a very, very good study Bible. I use it all the time. They believe law in this entire chapter is referring to the Mosaic law. And then you have the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, their study Bible says that they believe law is being used two different ways here throughout the text, such as the law in verse 1 referring to, you know, law in general, i.e. that could be Roman civil law or, or Jewish law, not, not Jewish laws in the Torah. And then you have verses 4 through 5, they'll say is referring to the Mosaic law that we see in the Torah. And the only reason I mention this is because ultimately it is going to be up to you, the reader, to do the homework and decide for yourself when you see that word law, regardless of what the translation does, if it capitalizes it, if it doesn't, because not every translation, as I said before, will capitalize those letters because they just don't want to, you know, they don't want to muddy any waters making you think it's talking about something when it's not. Uh, but you yourself will have to do that homework and decide if this word law is actually referring to either law in general or the actual law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law. Now, I don't want my personal opinion to influence anybody, but me personally, I do believe that we see somewhat of a mixture in here, but I do believe the overall big emphasis is going to be on the big capital L law that we're talking about in these verses. 
So now that we have some understanding, let's go ahead and dive in. And in traditional fashion, as we always do, we are going to go ahead and read chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 of Romans, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse, so that way we can get a good in-context understanding. Because remember, context is king. All right, so starting at verse 1, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the unmarried woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But we now have been released from that law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of spirit and not the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which was good become the, you know, the cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And there we have our 13, first 13 verses. As we start breaking this down, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word that we can study and we can learn and we can talk about these things. I pray that you take out any preconceived notions of our mind, Lord, that are not true, and just let us read your word and understand it for what it is, Lord. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity, Lord, and thank you so much for all that you do in our lives. In your name we pray, in your will alone, amen. All right, so as we start breaking this down, I want to actually give you uh, the main application for these passages as we go over it. And you're going to see the reasoning behind these applications. And this is something that I've been personally wanting to do a little bit more on the show. I've gotten some feedback. Uh, it se uh, seems some people out there think, you know, maybe I'm a little bit more knowledge-based rather than application-based. And I don't want that to be. I think this has to be a good mix. You have to have knowledge uh, first, and then with that knowledge, you can then apply the proper application all through the Holy Spirit, of course. 
So let me go ahead just right off the bat and give these applications uh, and that way we can see this as we go ahead and continue breaking this down. So number one, do not live a life of condemnation. Or in other words, don't live as if you are a death row inmate who is awaiting punishment. Paul teaches here that we as Christians are no longer under the condemnation, excuse me, of the law. You know, and thanks be to Christ Jesus for that. Number two, pay attention to the conviction the law brings, capital L, which is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So we are not, while we're not under any condemnation, the law is still God's holy standard and it is still good and it is how we are to live our lives. This is hard to talk about with non-believers because they have a hard time getting this. But for Christians, we have the Holy Spirit who naturally will guide us on this path. It's almost like an autopilot, but we still have to do some active piloting. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is ultimately guiding us on this path. It, it's, it's all a God thing, and I, I want to make sure people know that. You know, God changing you to love God's law and enabling us to walk in it. It's almost as if it becomes a subconscious action. And application number three, if you have not done so, study the Ten Commandments. Memorize them if you have not. Hide those words in your heart. Meditate them, just as Psalms 1 talks about it. And I'm going to mention it later, but nine out of the Ten Commandments that we see in the Ten Commandments are repeated and taught throughout the New Testament Scriptures after the resurrection of Christ. The only one that we are never commanded to follow in the New Testament after the death, burial, and resurrection was to follow the Sabbath. Uh, and Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. In other words, I like to think of it as Christ being our Sabbath day rest. But that's something to dive in deeper in another topic in another time. So just briefly, one more time, going over these three applications. Don't live a life feeling like you are underneath condemnation. Know that you are in grace. Number two, pay attention to the conviction that the law actually brings. Don't, you know, do the the quote-unquote unhitching from the Old Testament or unhitching from the law uh, a lot of these, you know, what you would call hyper grace people would say, you know, the, you know, ignore the law. You don't, don't worry about it anymore. But no, pay attention to the conviction that the law brings, which is ultimately the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And number three, once again, study those Ten Commandments, memorize them, hide them in your heart. All right. So with that being said, as we go through this, uh, we're going to go ahead and break down the passages verse by verse, and go over some of this application that we talked about and also gain some understanding about what we're doing. So let's go ahead and do it. So verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So Romans 7 starts off with a continuation of uh, Romans chapter 6. And this is another reason why it is important to read a book as a whole, not just a one chapter in isolation or one verse in isolation. He starts off right here by saying, or do you not know? If you don't 
go back and read chapter six, you're not going to know what he's talking about. So what do we need to know about? And to know what Paul is talking about, we're going to go ahead and peek back at that last sentence of chapter six and add it with our very first verse in chapter seven. And it would read like this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, this verse could make a lot more sense if you do it like that. It causes, it's a cause and effect that sin will always result in death. The only way out of this is if Jesus Christ has already taken the effect of your sin in your place. Paul goes on to explain that this cause and effect is subject to everyone because all of Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Very famous Bible passage. Many people memorize. You know, it's in the Romans road. And since all have sinned, all will have to die. That's the cause and effect. Because we have sinned, we are going to have to die because the result of sin is death. This law of sin and death has jurisdiction over every single person. And soon, Paul will explain everyone except for those who have come to believe in Christ. Now, I also want to add that Paul uses the word brethren here. And this is something, when you see that word brethren, this is where he's referring to fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we move to the verse uh, 2, as we move to verse 2, Paul is going to use an analogy to help the readers understand what he just said. Now, before we dive in, many people are, are, are going to get stuck on verse 2 and, and these next couple verses. They, they, they kind of veer off the path and forget the entire lesson that Paul is trying to make. And once you read it, and you already probably know what I'm talking about, once you read it, you'll see. So verse 2 starts out like this. This is the analogy, remember. For the married woman is bound to the law to her husband, is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. All right, so once again, this is an analogy of marriage that Paul is using to help the reader understand our relationship with the law. On a side note, whenever you see a verse that starts with the word for, it is explaining or giving the answer to a previous statement. That's what he's doing here. The Bible is clear, and uh, and even in the Old Testament, that death would resolve, or resolve, that death would dissolve a marriage. So that's what Paul is talking about here. He's using this analogy of marriage and death because in the Old Testament, death would dissolve a marriage. And in the widow or the widower, the spouse would be allowed to remarry. That widow or widower, they would allow be allowed to remarry. Now, sadly, once again, I said verses two through three, many people will read these passages in isolation. They'll do a quick Google search when they're reading or studying about divorce. And then they'll see this and think this is the be all say all on marriage, divorce, remarriage, etc., which it is not. Paul's point here is not to give a rigorous and in-depth teaching on marriage, but rather to use a, a point, an analogy to go ahead and explain our relationship with the law. If readers want to do an in-depth study on marriage in the New Testament, then there are many other passages that cover this topic in depth, such as Matthew 5 or 19 or 1 Corinthians 7. But bottom line, this is an analogy, 
not an in-depth teaching on marriage. And sadly, I, I have come across people where I have done teachings on divorce and remarriage, uh, giving sermons about it, and, you know, they'll comment to me that, you know, oh, you know, you can't do this based upon this very passage. And I'm like, you can't just read those in isolation. You have to go to the other verses that talk about it, put it together, and then make your conclusion. Just don't take one verse or two in isolation. Everything in context. So let's go ahead and get into verse two then. Or as you as I were, as you were, <laughs> verse three. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So putting that all together in, in this analogy, Paul has a married woman who is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband ends up dying, then she is released from that binding to her husband, and she's free to marry somebody else. But if she goes and she, say, divorces him unbiblically, or if she just cheats on him and joins together and starts living with another man, she's going to be called an adulteress. But once her original husband dies, she is then free from that law, and she's not an adulteress anymore, even though she is joined with that other man. That other man essentially is now her husband, and that's kind of adding a little bit to it, but that's basically how I see that, and that's what Paul is saying. So Paul is using this analogy, uh, you know, to, to show that, that when a person goes off and remarries another person, they are considered an adulterer until the death of that first spouse. Now, the focus here needs to be on the word death. Death is what will dissolve the binding of marriage. In verse 4, Paul's going to actually bring this all together. So let's go ahead and jump there. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And here we see the big picture. We as believers are made to die to the law through the body of Christ, meaning before Christ, we were bound to the law. That's a fact. Before Christ, we were bound to the law, a law that we could not keep. If we did not keep the law perfectly, if we sinned even once, therefore we would be punished. And the punishment is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Or in other words, hell, a place where Jesus said there will be, quote, gnashing and weeping or sorry, as you were, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to mix up that words. It just sounds scary the way Jesus says it. And he uses that multiple times, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the result of sin, sinning against the law when we're bound to the law. But Jesus Christ, who came in human flesh, lived the perfect life, life, completely upheld and fulfilled the law, and then was killed on a cross and received the full wrath of God in our place. On that day, Christ bore the sins of every single person who would ever come to believe in him. And through this, we can be called the righteousness. We can be called righteous in God's eyes through Jesus Christ's merits, not our own. 
He, God, who made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, him being Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's probably one of my favorite verses when I explain how salvation works. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ's death, those who he, Christ, died for, us, the believers, we have also died through his death. And we are now born again new. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when he said, You must be born again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 18. We are a new creation, a new creature in Christ. The old person that we used to be has passed away. This further builds on what Paul was just saying in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, where he said, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. We have been literally buried with Christ, is what Paul is saying, spiritually, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory to of the Father, sorry, as you were, through the glory to of the Father, so that we might walk in the newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin as christians our old self has died we are now new in christ born again and in that death that spiritual death we died to our sins our breaking god's holy law we died to the law now that we have died to the law, we can be joined to another, and that other is Jesus Christ. And lastly, as this verse says, in order that we might bear fruit for God, meaning once we are saved, we don't just sit around and do nothing, but rather we get to work. This is why I believe uh, now, today, that some who claim Christ, some who claim that they are Christians, will take issue uh, with, with, with what I said, sadly. Uh, about us no longer being bound to the law. We'll hold off on that for now, and we're going to continue on it because Paul ends up making this very clear towards the end of what the role of a Christian has in regards to the law, capital L. But for now, let's go ahead and continue on to verse 5 before we start rabbit-holing a little too far off. So verse 5. Uh, and before we jump into verse 5, I just want to once again make it clear. Do you see the analogy that Paul was using? about how a married person is bound to their spouse until death, such as we were bound to the law until death. Death either resulting in eternal damnation, or for the believer, spiritual death through Christ Jesus. When Christ died, we 
died. Our old sinful nature died, and we have now become a new creation. That's the analogy that Paul was making. So let's get into verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. When Paul is talking about flesh here, he is referring to our sin nature or how we were before we believed. We were a slave to our sinful desires. To make this clear, the Greek word used here for flesh does mean our physical flesh, but there was actually no real Greek word at the time that meant, you know, our inherent sin nature. Sometimes Paul will actually combine different words to make up his own words, and that's why you don't see him a lot in different, you know, Greek literature. Uh, Paul was kind of famous for this, but even Jesus did this in the Gospels. Sometimes when he says the word flesh, he is referring to our physical body, but not in this case, based on the context. That's why context, once again, is so important. To further make it clear, he uses the term sinful passions in verse 5 to reflect that he is talking about our sin nature rather than our physical body. And in this verse, Paul tells us that our sinful passions were actually aroused by the law. A good analogy for this would be, you know, the same thing as a child who was told not to touch something. And then how that makes, you know, him or her even more curious to go up and touch it. Maybe you have a similar experience with that when you were a child. It's similar to how an unsaved person is when it comes to the law. Sin was always present in humanity since the very fall in the Garden of Eden. Sin was always present since that fall. But once the law came about, when God passed it down on Mount Sinai, that desire to sin grew more and more. Another analogy that we can use, you know, might be the lure of, of drinking for people who are underage. The fact that it's illegal under 20, the age of 21 in America, where we, I currently live, makes it more alluring and the desire to actually try to drink alcohol, it, it grows when you're at that young age. I know this is how it was for me when I was, you know, an unregenerate, depraved teenager. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law, and they went to work in our physical body, our members, as Paul refers to them. Our lips told lies, our ears listened to foul conversations, our hands committed dirty deeds, so forth and so on. You get the point. Those sins bore fruit only for death in order that words, those deeds, those they condemned us to die. The bottom line is, is when people are told that they cannot do something, for the unsaved, unregenerate person, it's just a natural reaction to want to express their independence and rebel. That's what Paul is saying when the law came in. The sin was always there. The sinful nature, the sinful passions were always there. But when the law came in and someone actually came down and said, don't do these things, the curiosity grew and the desire to do the forbidden taboo things grew. That's what Paul is explaining. In verse 6, he says, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we can serve in the newness of spirit and not the oldness of the letter. 
Now, this is one of my favorite passages uh, when I'm talking to somebody about the law. We now serve in the newness of spirit, not the oldness of the letter. As said before, we have been released from the law. We are no longer bound to it. And we can now be bound to Christ and though and through the Holy Spirit who takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. We no longer look to stone-cold tablets that the law was written out on originally, but rather the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who enables us now to do the will of God, who writes God's law on our heart. This gets into controversy, and and it was like I was talking about earlier. There are varying views when it comes to Christians and the law. A few episodes ago, when I brought in one of my buddies and we talked about uh, Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount discussing this, I, I picture it as, as a pendulum that swings from the far left to the far right. And on one side, you have someone who claims that we still need to follow the law. And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about all of it. And if you don't do that, then you don't love God. And then, of course, if you don't love God, then that means you're not a Christian. I've literally heard this said before from varying people and different YouTube channels. They'll say that. The dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, this is all the stuff they're talking about. All the stuff that you read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that weren't specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments. They'll say, if you do not do those things, that means you don't love God. And if you don't love God, then you aren't a Christian. Now, there's going to be varying views on what laws to follow because this group, we call them, you know, Torah observant, Hebrew roots, whole Bible believers. They got like 20 different names. But they don't have a specific set of doctrine because they're so decentralized and there's so many varying views on what laws to follow. Because ultimately, they're trying to do something that we're not as Christians supposed to do today anyways. They must have never paid attention to this passage in Romans if they believe that. These people, like I said, will go by these various names. Uh, I mainly refer to them as Torah observant because that's what I've mostly seen. Uh, and I believe most people get into these movements with a, a, a desire to please God, which is good, as we'll soon read. But the law, because the law is not bad, it's God's holy standard. Of course we want to follow it. But when we try to live to the letter of the laws, Paul says, and you condemn brothers and sisters in the faith, who do not follow it, this is where we have an issue. Now, let me be clear. We as Christians should still be following God's law, the Ten Commandments. But the difference is that before we believed, we had to do it to the letter and fight against our sin nature all on our own, which is impossible. But now, as a believer, we have the Holy Spirit. And just as it says in Hebrews 10, when the writer quotes Jeremiah saying, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We are not saved by following the law, and we cannot maintain, quote-unquote, maintain 
our salvation through following the law. Once you are saved, you are saved. And there is nothing that is going to change that because you were saved by the power of God, not by the power of yourself. If you were saved by the power of yourself, I can absolutely understand why someone would believe that we have to continue following the law in order to keep our salvation. But we were not saved on our own. We were saved by grace through faith. All 100% Christ, not us. We are in Christ's arms. We are in God's arms. And nobody can take us out of that. So we are no longer, as Christians, living, looking at the letter of the law. But rather, the law has been implanted in us via the Holy Spirit. This is our new nature, new creation, just as we talked about before. Living to the oldness of the letter was what the Pharisees were doing. When you read through the Gospels, they missed the entire point of the law because they were so focused on the exact words that they missed the entire moral reason. This is what Jesus was talking about when he gave his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. God's moral law is really the point. Not just looking at letters on a tablet or a scroll, but what is the law actually getting at? To use an analogy, myself in the army, I'm constantly training new soldiers. And when they come to my unit, I can go about training them, you know, really two different ways. There might be more, but I'm really seeing two different ways in my mind. One, I can tell them exactly what to do, give them a step-by-step checklist-like block of instruction on how to do it, and then leave it at that. When they ask why, I can be like, just do your job. Just do what I tell you. Or I can actually explain to them why they are doing what they're doing and the purpose behind it so that they can gain a proper understanding. Not only does this give them a proper understanding, but it brings them a part of that team. It makes them feel a part of that team and it can allow them to think for themselves when they see the purpose behind it. The Pharisees did not care about the why. They only cared about the letters. They only wanted to do the do, in other words. (laughs) While Jesus comes along here and ends up saying, no, you, you, you guys actually missed the entire point. David writes in Psalms 1 that the righteous man has his, quote, delight in the law of the Lord And in his law, he meditates day and night. How can someone delight in something when they fail to see the purpose of it and simply look at it as a task list or a checklist or a block of instruction? They can't. This is why God writes his law on our heart rather than a tablet. The law is written in us. And through the Holy Spirit, we can follow the law of God. Albeit, we're not going to follow it perfectly. We're still in this flesh, and we're actually going to read more in depth about that as we continue through Romans chapter 7 in the last half that we're going to cover the next time. So we'll save it for then. But I don't want anybody to get the impression that the Holy Spirit comes in, writes the law in our heart, and we're going to absolutely follow it 100% to a T. That's not what happens. And Paul, once again, like I said, will explain that in the last half of Romans chapter 7. 
Now let's go ahead and discuss, since we, we, we talked about one side of the pendulum, the, the people who say we absolutely have to continue following the law, and if you don't, you're not a Christian, there, there are people on the other side that believe that we are under grace, which we are, but somehow that because we're under grace, that means we can essentially do anything we want. Now, very rarely will anybody who believes this ever come right out and say that because they know that it sounds ridiculous. But I could show you clips, uh, just scroll through, scrolling through TikTok or YouTube or something like that, where someone is saying that they'll tell you if someone tells you to, that you need to obey God, then then that person is a legalist. And they believe in a, uh, and I'm quoting here because I've actually been told this, a backdoor work salvation whatever that is, backdoor work salvation. Um, but but literally, I've heard that. Or, or they'll cringe when you mention the words repentance, repentance of sin, being a Christian action. If a Christian does not believe that repentance is, in, is, a, is a Christian action, then they're really going to take issue with much of the Bible and especially with the book of Acts. You know, one of my favorites coming from chapter 11, verse 18, where it says, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance from sin is a part of the gospel. Anybody that says differently doesn't have an understanding of the gospel. Repentance is produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives, and this is what causes us to repent from our sin. I've gone over it before in different episodes, but what repentance means is literally a change of mind, and it starts off first from a repentance of not believing in God. You change your mind about God. You now believe in God, and then repentance from sin is changing your mind on sin. You used to love sin. Now you no longer love it. doesn't mean you're never going to do it again, but it just means you don't love it anymore. Your desire is not to do it. Even if you fail at times, you overall hate your sin. And as with most extremes, we talked about one side and the other side. The answer is, you know, really found in the middle. Simply, we are dead to the law and we are under grace because of Christ. And at the same time, if you call yourself a Christian, we should be following God's law because his law is written on our heart and on our mind, and on our innermost being, our spirit. And if you are not delighting in his law, just like Psalm 1 talks about, you might need to examine yourself. Now, this doesn't mean that we will follow it perfectly, as I said earlier, but you're going to continue as a Christian to see growth and love for his law more and more. Now, lastly, when I say law, I'm referring to the Ten Commandments here. I'm not referring to the dietary and ceremonial laws, etc., etc. Those laws fell to the wayside after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ fulfilled that. He was the final and perfect sacrifice. Now, I can go a lot deeper on the commandments, but that's going to be for another day. But last thing I'm going to say on it is the Bible after the resurrection of Christ, as I said earlier, fully affirms nine of the Ten Commandments, and the one being left out is the Sabbath. We talked about it a little bit, and we're not going to go super deep into that, but essentially, once again, I said Christ is our Sabbath rest. Now, I don't want to go ahead and chase rabbits, so let's go ahead and move on to verse 7. Verse 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law said you shall not covet. What Paul is doing here is he's posing a hypothetical question uh, some of his readers might have in their mind after making that last statement about the law. He wants them to understand that the law is not evil. He's simply saying that because of the law, we were made aware of our sin. And he uses the example here of coveting. He shows, uh, he shows us that the law gave us knowledge of right and wrong, good and bad. And what you will notice, starting at verse 7, all the way until the end of chapter 7, is Paul will start using the word I a lot. And he is using himself as an example. And this is really important because he is showing that even him, an apostle, who has seen the risen Christ, also went through these very exact same things, which especially becomes key in the last half of this chapter, which once again, we're going to go over much more in depth next time. Now, sadly, there is some controversy over who Paul is referring to when he uses the word I. You have one side claiming that he is only referring to unsaved people here, or maybe himself before he was saved. But the vast majority of scholars, and when you really look at this in context, agree that Paul here is talking about himself, first person, his own life, at the present time. But like I said, we're going to go much deeper into that in the next episode. Moving on to verse 8. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is is dead. And here he makes his point that just by knowing that the law says do not covet, it produced in him the desire and execution of coveting of every kind. Paul then says, apart from the law, sin is dead. And he is not saying that if God never gave the law, then we never would have sinned. He wants to make that very clear. No, sinning is sinning is sinning. He is talking about how through the law, we are now made aware of our sin. Uh, An analogy would be like a child stealing a toy from a toy store, and then when you catch that child, they might say, oh, I didn't know it was wrong. But when you tell them beforehand, they're now made aware that it's wrong. And at that point, they'll either not do it again or more often than not, sadly, as a, as a child does, you know, they'll, it'll produce the desire to do it even more. And then the only thing that will prevent them from actually doing it is the knowledge that if they do this, they will be punished. I mean, this is the basic rule of of law in human society. The whole reason why we have laws is to restrain evil. If we had no laws against sin, against murder, against thievery, against uh, adultery, uh, whatever sinful desire you can imagine, if there weren't laws against those things... There's nothing holding people back from doing it. Some people might say, oh, no, it's the morally right thing to do. No, it's because they're actually afraid of the punishment that will ensue. That's what's restraining the evil back, not the individual person themselves. In verse 9, Paul then says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, 
proved result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now, Paul's deepening this explanation here in verses 9 through 11, reiterating what he has been saying this whole time. Before the law, we were ignorant of our sin. But when the law came, we had knowledge of our sin. And through that sin, we were condemned to death. In this theory, someone could follow the law perfectly. In theory, once again, in theory. If someone could follow the law perfectly, they could live and be considered righteous, good, and holy in God's eyes. But we know that's not possible, just as we read earlier, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person alive, uh, past, present, future, has sinned, with the exception of Jesus Christ. Almost poetically, Paul says... What was supposed to bring me to life, which was the law, actually only brought me death because there was no way we could keep it. And then in verse 12, he says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here he wants to make sure the readers know that the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good, that the law is like going to the doctor only to find out that you have cancer. A common reaction by some people would be initially to blame the doctor because before going to the doctor, they were ignorant of their condition. But the doctor is in fact good because he or she shines light on your condition, on the fact that you have cancer, which in theory then enables you to fight against it. Paul is doing the exact same thing here. Paul wants to show us that just because the law removes the ignorance of our sinful condition, arouses sin, and ultimately will condemn us to death because we cannot follow it, it does not make the law evil or wrong, just like the doctor who lets you know that you have cancer. But as we just said, the law is actually still holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13, therefore, did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin affecting my death through that which is good. So that the commandment, sin, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Here he poses another hypothetical question and asks, therefore, that which is good become the cause of death for me? And answers with a resounding, may it never be, or in today's way of talking, no, 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 absolutely not. He shows us that the law came to show us our sin so that we could be aware of it, just like the doctor analogy, so that we can fight that cancer. Because if we didn't know about it, it would just eat us away until we die. This is what sin does in our lives. Sin is a cancer that spreads through our body and condemns us to death. And what the law does, like I said, being that doctor shining the light on our sin, on our cancer, we are now in a position to where we can either fight it and live or do nothing and die. 
And the beauty is, is when we fight it, it's not really us fighting it, but rather allowing Christ to fight it for us. And that's a victory that has already been won. That's why we know when we become a Christian, victory is already assured. Now that we've gone over all those passages, and as we wrap this up, let's go ahead and look at the true purpose of the law and how this is to work in a person's life. The big picture, as my current pastor uh, says, he loves saying that, you know, if I had to give, you know, the big idea or the big picture, uh, (laughs) is it really, really awesome. This one of the benefits of being in the military, you move so much and you see so many different pastors. I hate being uprooted from a church, but at the same time, it is nice to learn underneath so many different people. Uh, But like I said, my current pastor always says, the big idea, let me go ahead and give you the big idea. Number one, sin has always been present in humanity since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Number two, God gave the law to point out that sin is sin and to show us God's holy standard. Number three, the law ultimately condemns us because there is no way that we can keep it. Number four, Christ comes in, lives a sinless life, fulfills the law, completes it in our place, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, imputes or gives us his righteousness by taking the punishment for breaking the law in our place. Christ took our place. We broke the law. Christ didn't, but he took our place. And God treated him as if he broke the law. Number five, the unconverted person should see the law, be convicted by it, and understand that they cannot keep it on their own works and merit. Number six, this points them to Christ, who kept it for them, the law, who kept the law for them, believe in him, Jesus Christ, and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and receive his imputed righteousness. Because when we believe, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Because that's the only righteousness that will ever get us into heaven. Now that we have believed, number seven, now that we have believed, we receive the Holy Spirit, who then writes God's law on our heart and on our mind and enables us to walk in it and bear good fruit, a.k.a. good works for God. Once again, this is something that upsets people who fall into that, you know, quote unquote, hyper grace camp. You know, no works, no works, no works. You don't got to do any work. Somebody can be saved and show absolutely no signs whatsoever, but they're actually saved. I disagree because the Bible disagrees. Everything the Bible says when it comes to salvation is that we are now enabled to do good works for God. Good works. Salvation will result in good works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved unto works. We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, one of my favorite passages. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then verse 10, so many people leave this part out. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, in order that we should 
uh, which God prepared beforehand, excuse me, in order that we should walk in them. God already created the good works that we are going to walk in as Christians. It's going to happen. A true Christian will work in good works. You can read in James a little bit more if you want to know more on that, but that's going to be another subject for another time. And lastly, point eight. When our physical life ends on this earth, our spirit, being saved in Christ, will be united with Christ in heaven. This is the end. Our spirit, being saved in Christ, will be united with Christ in heaven. Now, obviously, we can maybe throw out more points if we wanted to, and many of those things are going to get covered uh, as as we go through Romans chapter 7, and really the next episode is going to be the last half of Romans 7, where we talk about our spirit in the present, in today's world, still engaged in this body of flesh that is going to die. When I say flesh, I mean the human body. And inside this human body is still the results of sin, which will ultimately lead to a physical death pending the the, the second coming of Christ. Now, with all that being said, I, I hope you gained a good understanding now of how the law plays with the Christian today. Number one, we don't hate the law. But number two, we are not saved by the law. We are saved by Christ, who kept the law in our place because we couldn't do it. And through believing in him, we are now enabled through the Holy Spirit, because you get the Holy Spirit when you believe. We are now enabled through the Holy Spirit to do the law of God and to execute those good works because he has written his law on our hearts and our mind in our very innermost being. All right, well, I think this episode has gone on long enough. If you have any questions, comments, anything like that, uh, please hit us up, ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. It stands for I Believe Now What, ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or um, I don't really check Twitter all that much too often, but you can find us on Twitter as well. And then, of course, if you want to go on to my personal TikTok, it is Saved by the Savior. That's where you can find it. Uh, But anyways, y'all have a wonderful one, and I pray this episode has blessed you. Get ready for the next one because it is going to be a doozy as we go through the last half of Romans chapter 7. Y'all have a good one.